This episode is brought to you by Summer School Electronics. With pedals like the Snow Day Delay, the Pep Rally Fuzz, the Trash Panda, and my personal favorite, the Science Fair, which is two classic dirt pedals in one with a mid-boosted overdrive on one side, a black lab rat circuit on the other, and a blend knob to blend between them to find the perfect classic stacked dirt sound you're looking for, it's hard not to find something you'll love. Mark builds all of his pedals by hand in Syracuse, New York, where he also works as a full-time educator. In addition to the super fun graphics on their pedals, Mark also offers custom artwork. Want your dog's face on a pedal? He can do it. Want your face on a pedal? He can make that happen too. Go over to summerschoolelectronics.com and make sure to tell them that 40 Watt Podcast sent you. 40 Waters, welcome to Season 2 of the 40 Watt Podcast. I'm super excited this season to bring you more guests, more uh, musicians, touring, uh, both touring and studio musicians, songwriters, more gear makers, gear heads, other people that we know in and around the industry, and hear from them, hear their takes, hear their experiences. I'm ready for that to happen, and I hope you are too. It's going to be a great season as we head into 2022. A um, couple of things before we kick off this episode. Uh Really appreciate all of you that have gone out and followed on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, um, Twitter. Those of you that interacted, joined the community, joined in the live uh, streams that I've started doing on Sunday nights on Instagram. Um, those of you that have gone to the website, shared us with your friends, rated and reviewed on uh, both on Spotify Apple Music on YouTube. I can't tell you how much it means to me. Uh, especially, I want to say thank you to all of my Patreon supporters. Uh, you guys make this happen. Y'all make this really a lot of fun. If you want to find a way to support the podcast, here's how you can do it. There's some great ways you can do it. One, simply tell your friends about the podcast. Share the podcast with others. Get other people in this 40 water environment community that we started to build. If you want to get involved in a little more way, you can go over to patreon.com slash 40 watt podcast, where for uh, as little as $3 a month, you can support the podcast, help make this show happen. Know that you're helping me cut some of the overhead costs that doing this podcast costs me. For $5 a month, you will get an extra episode every week of the podcast. That's more interviews, more gear reviews, more insights into the music industry for $5 a month. Um, I, I can't tell you how much that absolutely means to me. There's other tiers. You can go on up from there. There's um, You can go up into the stratosphere up to the point that I'll give you guitar, music, keyboard, singing. You don't, you don't want singing lessons from me, but I'll give you lessons. We'll talk music theory. You'll get some of my time every month. Um, so go over to the website, 40wattpodcast.com. Go to Patreon, patreon.com slash 40 Watt Podcast. You can find all the links, all the information there. And I'm really excited to get in this season. Enjoy the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. 40 Watt Podcast, uh, season two. I don't know what episode number this is anymore, and uh, you probably saw it in the text. So awesome. This week, I'm super excited. I've got um, 
someone who's probably not going to be new to any of you, just to be really honest. I think I think uh, the Venn diagram of our audience is my tiny circle inside your giant circle, RJ. <laughs> but um, got RJ Ronquillo on the show. And uh, super excited. I've been wanting to get you on since since last season, actually. Um, but uh, it was my own fault. I couldn't find the right contact information for you, and I was like, I couldn't, I couldn't find it. But finally, found it. Thanks uh, for having me, Philip. Man, I'm glad to have you on. So, how are you doing? Good. Um, starting the new year, busy. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. So I, just, I can't complain. I just saw. Um, I just so I getting ready for this episode. I rewatched your rig rundown with uh, from your guitar, and I also just saw that. Uh, and this is we're going to absolutely talk about this. When I saw this video this morning, I knew we had to. You also just got a Murphy Lab Gibson Les Paul in. Oh yeah, and, I've been playing it a lot. <laughs> yeah, I um I got the the grand tour of the the Gibson Garage there during Summer Nam last year, and played a couple of the the Murphy Labs that they had in and. I don't know how I'll ever afford it, but I feel like I need one of those. You'll find a way. Yeah. That's what I did. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want I want one of the 335s real bad. Real, yeah. real bad. God, That's it's, nice. It's it's ridiculously good. So, okay, before we get too deep into the gear weeds, um, for the absolutely lottery-ish chance that I have a listener who doesn't know who you are, uh, give the 30,000-foot view who you are, what you do, how you got into playing guitar and music. I'm RJ. Uh, most people know me from my YouTube gear demo videos. Uh, my channel is mostly gear demos now, but I've done some lesson videos and some tour vlogs and all that stuff. But I'm primarily known as a gear guy, which is fine. But, uh, you know, I love playing guitar. Um, prior to being a U- uh, quote-unquote YouTuber <laughs> slash influencer, I hate to use that term, but... Um, I was a, a working musician. I guess I still am a working musician. I just don't gig as much. Yeah. Um, or at least I pick and choose more uh, wisely, I guess. But I used to tour, do some session work. Um, yeah. And I think I've been a, technically a professional musician for, God, 21 years. Oh, wow. That's intense. Yeah. So... so I- I, one of the things that drew me to your channel and to your playing, and we're going to, there's a whole lot of points I want to touch on, um, that I, you know, haven't flooded your questions during your live stream on Saturdays kind of thing, um, is early on in some of your YouTube videos, uh, you have a ton of Delta blues and roots influence in your playing and in the music you like, and yet you listen to, I found some videos cause I was looking at, um, I need a new resonator, right? And uh, I sold my I sold my old resonator, spider cone. wasn't the sound I wanted. I played it for a bunch of years. I want to get a biscuit resonator. And I found that you had a bunch of videos with the Republic resonator. And I've been really looking at Republic because I don't want to shell out the money for a mule when it's something I don't use that much. Yeah, uh, as, as great as those mules are. But um, and I yeah, like you're playing blues tunes. You're playing a bunch of blues music. And I'm from uh, as my listeners know, I'm from Clarksdale, Mississippi, which is kind of you know like the Home heart of and soul of the blue. Yeah. So it's one of those great things. It's and and you know it's the cliche of the YouTuber, just a bunch of blues licks through guitar pedals, you know. But it was like it, it's not just licks. Like I I found that you were very authentic. How'd you? Because you're originally from 
Detroit. Detroit. Yeah. So, okay. I, I don't have the timeline. I know you lived, you were in Michigan for a while and you're Chicago for a while. You went to, I think you went to school in Florida. Yeah. Um, and so I don't, I don't know your timeline, so I didn't know exactly which one of those was home, home, but how'd you get into the blues being in Detroit? So it's, that was, that's actually a really good observation. Um, when I started putting stuff on YouTube, I was very much into blues roots, um, old school jazz, you know, um, at the time, and at the time I was living in LA and living in LA. So I had moved to LA from South Florida because you know, I just wanted a different scene. And one thing a lot of people might not know about with LA is, or at least Southern California is there's a very unique um blue scene um there i mean some people refer to it as like a west coast blue scene but right. it's unlike any other blue scene that i've you know it's un- unlike you know clarksdale memphis chicago that austin whatever um like the west coast blues is very much like a t-bone walker thing but at sort the of same a, sort time of a jump blues type thing I yeah feel like is, i know, mean that's that's one of the uh one of the styles in there? One of the styles, but, you know, a lot of the jump blues players are also into um, Delta blues right. or, you know, really early stuff. The The whole thing with that scene is like, you know, grease my hair back, <laughs> live basically in a different decade, sometimes a different century. But um, when I was living out there, I got really heavily into... Not just West Coast blues, but more into the Delta blues and learning about pre-war blues and all that type of stuff. So it kind of worked, you know, in tandem with me putting out YouTube videos because that was kind of the what I was into at the time and the style. So a lot of my early like Eastwood guitars videos, I I don't even think I put clicked on a distortion pedal for a lot of those <laughs> things because I was just like oh, I'm a blues guy. I'm this is my style or whatever. So a lot of the early stuff I started putting up online was very much of that style. So it was all kind of a timing thing. But I got into it, you know. I've always been a blues fan and a blues. I thought I was a blues player. <laughs> um, there was. You know, I started playing guitar because of, of Chuck Berry and early rock and roll. So I kind of got my start with that type of uh, genre. Um, and then it wasn't until my late 20s, early 30s when I rediscovered my love for blues music. And I think I was listening to more Delta stuff like Sun House. Um, skip james like a lot of old school acoustic blues players as well as like you know Derek trucks and um oh yeah a couple uh tab benoit a lot of like modern blues people um and then at some point i shied away from it for a little bit and then you know later on when i moved to la i got back into it and it's just something it's one of those styles that i keep on coming back to and that's just um, proof that it's something that I am passionate about, and it's like a music that really, you know, gets me. That you know, I understand it and everything. So, that I like. I have a special love for blues music in particular. Like that's one style I could play for the rest of my life and be happy. I see, you know? and it's funny because you know there are the regular. Uh, 
I don't know. There's there's like this negativity towards people who play blues on YouTube. Like there's this whole movement of younger players who are tired of hearing blues licks, I guess. And that's fine. I get it. They don't want to hear it anymore. But it's sort of like and I and I get it. Like that's a natural inclination to a lot of like demo folks to go pentatonic box, play that kind of stuff and and just in general music. But it's like for me uh, coming into this scene, you know, this is I, I was a player for years. I didn't play nearly on the level you've toured or played on. You know, I played lots and lots of local blues shows and, and all the bands I played with were with um, like legit blues guys that have been doing this for 50 years. You know what I mean? I get hired on last minute to play this run of three shows on guitar or bass or whatever it was they were needing. And it's the music I grew up with that, that was in my hometown. And so for me, it's like, I'm, I'm not trying to do anything. This is just who I am. It's like part of the blood. You can't get it out of there. And um, it's it's refreshing to see somebody else out there doing it and doing it so well and so authentically. So I I you you sort of questioned when you said call yourself a blues player. No, I'd call you a blues player. It, it's a, it's about as authentic as I've heard on YouTube. There's a well, lot of inauthentic you. blues on YouTube. <laughs> but it's funny because I I was one of those young guys too that was just like sick of hearing blues, um, and you know everyone sounding like Steve Ray Vaughan or or whatever, um. And a lot of it was because I didn't really understand it or, or what I knew of the blues was just, you know, scratching the surface. I didn't really know how deep it went or, you know, the different, I guess, subgenres of blues music that there are to discover. And, you know, a whole lot. Yeah. And, you know, you you go back and you can hear the old stuff in new players or, you know, every every player has to pull from something else from previous generations. Yeah, it and it's you know even growing up in the Mississippi Delta like I did, I heard Delta blues, and of course you know it, a lot of people are, get confused about that. Like Chicago and Delta blues are very linked because it's Delta blues, and then once you electrified it, you know you got your Muddy Waters, who's from my hometown, and mm-hmm. John Lee Hooker, and once they started electrifying it. It was very, very related, but Delta Blues is typically an acoustic style of blues music. And then I grew up with that, and I was in my 20s before I even heard a hill country blues literally from 45 miles from where <laughs> I lived. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's its own other animal. It's it's mm-hmm. this droney, vibey, you know, one and two chord type, just groove yeah. music. Boogie. Yeah, it's, it's all it's, boogie. It's fun. It's like It's like food, you know? Somebody's recipe from one town over could be totally different than your your village's recipe or whatever. Yeah. So it's crazy. I, see, I used to see it all the time. My, my family's Lebanese. And my mom's recipe for kibbe, which is a traditional Lebanese dish, is very different from even the sure. next family over's recipe for kibbe. And so my um, wife is half Lebanese and she, you know, we're always comparing, you know, this, this hummus tastes different than this hummus or... <laughs> You know, we'll be right back. This podcast is supported in part by String Joy Strings. I'm a snob, at least that's what people tell me. I'm never okay with good enough, and that's where String Joy Strings come in. They're better than good enough, they're the best. Stranger are making some of the finest strings available today right up the road from me in Nashville, Tennessee. They offer custom sets, balance, tension, coated strings, the works. If you need it, they can probably make it happen. 
you should be using Stringjoy strings. And if you're going to order from them, you really could help this podcast out by clicking the affiliate link down in the description or show notes below. You get amazing strings. I get a little bit of that back to help the show keep going. It's a win-win situation. Get your Stringjoy strings today. It's its its own definite <laughs> flavor. So... So you go through blues, you go through the thing. I mean, you've you've been a play. You know, I was I was trying to do my research, do my due diligence, which I'm not great at sometimes. <laughs> um, but you you've played on the road with, I mean, just some of the big names, the ones everybody likes to throw out. I'm sure, like you know, Stevie Wonder, Santana. You've done those gigs, right? I, at least the from your guitar reference those. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've made an active effort in the last year or so to a couple of years, even I think pre pandemic getting rid of touring, you sort of got off the road. You were deciding that that was a decision you wanted to get off the road a little bit. So what kind of spurred that decision? And, you know, cause a lot of guys, their dream is to get on the road. Like they want to sure. get out there and do it. Um, what made that decision to, to sort of get off the road? So um, I moved to Nashville like in 2014. Um, well, at least I started working out of Nashville in 2014. And the, the Nashville, well, the I should say the country music industry is is one of a kind um, as far as the business model um, and touring and everything. It's like a day. It's like having a regular nine to five day job. It's great for a musician um, because touring is such a big part of of the genre. Mm-hmm. More than I would say, more than rock or, or pop or anything. It's just like something that you do every year. You know, you do the summer festivals, you do all the, all that stuff. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's much like having a regular job. Um, so I did a, a gig with a, a group called Thompson Square. Mm-hmm. It's like a, a duo. And I did that for about five years. Um, and we were basically on the road every year for, you know, it wasn't a, t- you know, it started off with like a ton of shows, maybe like 130 shows a year or something. And then, you know, it kind of tapered off. But, um, you know, towards the end, I would say by year four, I was considering, um, making a move to, to get off the road, partially because, um, I was so worn out. I was so exhausted from the traveling because, you know, I, I always say this, that I, I play the gigs for free and I get paid to, for the traveling and waiting around and and waking up at 3am and all that stuff. That's, you know, that's what, that's the work. The music is the fun part. Um, except for sound check. I hate sound checks. <laughs> we, used to, but, we used to joke that when we'd play gigs, uh, that we were, we were playing for free. It was the setup and tear down of all the equipment that we were actually getting paid to do. Exactly. You're paying, you're getting paid for your time basically yeah. out on the road to be away from home. Um, but it's still very comfortable. Um, you know, the typical Nashville, and you probably know this, the typical Nashville country touring touring schedule is like you're out anywhere from like wednesday to sunday home on monday home on sunday or home on monday and then you have like a couple days at home and you do that pretty much every week for the better part of the year um and you know after a couple years doing that it, it definitely takes a toll um on your energy levels and your emotional levels and all that stuff so you know i, I just got worn out and at the time I had I had no idea about you know if YouTube was going to be a full-time thing but it was always in the back of my head like let, let's just see how 
you know, how this YouTube thing is going for other people and whatnot. So, um, I would say I had it in my head maybe the end of 2016, 2017 of, of considering, you know, just retiring from touring and, yeah. and um, possibly doing YouTube or at least something else. Um, and it wasn't until the end of 2018 is when I finally uh, quit or just, you know, stopped touring. So I was, you know, for at least two years, I was wanting to not tour, even though I was touring, you know? Right. Um, There's a lot of folks so, doing jobs they wish they weren't doing, though. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, I mean, that's, don't get me wrong. Touring is, is a dream job for any oh, yeah. musician. Um, but it took me, you know, I had to have the courage to jump ship because I didn't know if I could solely rely on, on YouTube gear demos. Um, but I mean, I, I got lucky as soon as I told all the companies that, Hey, I'm, I'm not going to be on the road anymore. So I'll have a lot more time to, to do, um, demo work like an avalanche. Like they just started throwing me gear and like, here, do that. <laughs> you know? So, you know, since 2018, it's just progressively been great. And I'm, uh, pretty happy, uh, with where I'm at and, you know, it's, I, I always get asked if I miss touring and, and there are some times where I do, mm-hmm. but like, I always say that I miss the shows, exactly. I miss the camaraderie, but if I have to ride on a bus for 10 hours with you, you guys and a stinky bunk, uh, I'll pass, you know, yeah, miss the show and you miss the hang, but not the, uh, all the yes. other parts of it. No, it makes total sense. Yeah. Uh, and, and a lot of, you know, I've never done significant touring like that the the most i've done is like you know weekend runs or you know we did like a two-week california thing at one point like forever ago and i've never done that wild massive tour but to hear some of the stories of folks and their life on the road um i had a friend of mine who used to work in memphis at the memphis drum shop and uh the the off-broadway production of wicked came through right and so the drummer from there came in the shop talking to him and he's talking about just his life on the road with this musical production. We're not even talking a band. He's with this musical. You know, he's spending uh, 100, 150 nights, probably more than that, a year uh, in an orchestra pit with walls around him in the dark. He doesn't even see the show. You know, he's got a camera mm-hmm. or, or a video screen where he can see the production for his cues. And uh, he told, he was talking to my buddy, and he said, yeah, I'm on the road all year, except for about two weeks a year. He said, I don't have an apartment. I don't have a a permanent address. I have a P.O. box and a storage unit and my cell phone. And those are all my expenses. And that's how I live. That's great. You don't have a family. You don't have, you know, a significant other. That's fine. That's a great way to live. But when I heard that story, I was like, oh, no, 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 that that is not a living that I want to make. Yeah, that's kind of like a higher level of of cruise ship musicians. Like I remember, you know, cruise ship musicians would be kind of that, of that same cut as like, you know, they don't really have a place on land. Right. So, which is, you know, they don't really need to because they're, they sign these contracts where they're just out on a ship most of the year. Um, and you got to really, really commit to that, that that type of lifestyle. You have to really be into that. And it's tough. It's a wild living. It's, it's something that, 
you know, uh, as a younger player, I thought that was the life I wanted. And then as I met more and more people who did make that living on the road and, you know, there were, there were a bunch of years there. I told, I was telling, uh, Sean from Lollygagger effects actually about this the other day. And, uh, it's, I played guitar for a living for a few years, but I wasn't making a good living. <laughs> it was like I was paying rent and maybe eating. You know what I mean? It, it wasn't a good living. I don't want anyone ever to think, you know, it's it's hard to make a living as a musician. And a lot of my friends who are blues musicians who are playing a ton of these tiny little shows are really practically killing themselves to make a, a minuscule living on the road. And it just it doesn't look that glamorous once you get close to it. It doesn't look as much fun. Yeah. I know a lot of uh, blues guys that make most of their money for the year in Europe at all those festivals because that's, you know, they make change here in the States, but they go to Europe and they're stars. Yep, absolutely. I've got a a buddy of mine, uh, Watermelon Slim. Uh, I I know him pretty well. And that's where he he goes to Europe or did pre-COVID a couple of times a year. And that's where he made a large chunk of his you know, living money for the year. Then you come yeah. back and play these little gigs here and there, but he'd go spend, you know, two and a half months, three months in Europe and play these huge shows, make real money over there. Cause they've got a different appreciation for the blues in mm-hmm. Europe than they do here in the U S here in the U S it's seen as old music or out of date or out of touch. And there, they're still pretty rabid about it. Oh yeah. So, so many festivals out there. Yeah. So, you're settled into Nashville. You're doing the Nashville thing. The YouTube thing, it, I see your videos pop up all the time. You're, you're, you are. You're right. You're flooded with stuff to do. You're staying very, very busy. Um, do you still get out and play any in Nashville? Doing any gigs at all? Um, in town, the only gig that I do is a yearly thing. Um, it's for, it's funny, it, it's for the 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 old record label of the art of the group that I was touring with Thompson Square. Mm-hmm. So they have a a yearly party. It's kind of a party slash um, pre CMA awards party. So the CMA awards is every October November here in Nashville. So they hold a party and I'm in the house band for that party and I just play twenty songs that night with a bunch of their artists. And um, I've been doing that pretty much every year that's the one gig i'll say yes to mostly because i get to play with my friends who are like the old band of of the of the previous artist but uh all and the money's good enough for me to start the car and go yeah have you have you ever considered uh writing and doing your own thing Do you, and and starting your own band and playing any sort of you know i had a project um in la just as kind of like a, a fun little thing called RJ and the Del Guapos, which was like kind of like a Chuck Berry, Little Richard type of 50s rock and roll thing. And I just kind of did it for fun. You know, I had no plans of ever touring with it or even making a second album. But um, so I should go back and say after I moved from uh, L.A., I didn't move to Nashville straight away. We actually moved to Chicago. Okay. Uh, for a uh, year and a half before we mo- officially moved and bought a house in Nashville. But uh, I was in Chicago for a little bit, and I kind of put together a band there, an RJ and the Del Guapos Chicago edition there. And we did a couple uh, local shows when I was in town, and it was fun. 
but other than that, you know, I, I never started anything here in Nashville. And, um, but that's, you know, it was for fun. I, I never really wanted to pursue it any further than that one little recording thing. But, um, a lot of people have been asking me about putting out, uh, like an RJ Ron Kilio album. And that's still on my mind, you know, like mm -hmm. an instrumental guitar record. Oh yeah. Um, pretty much basically what's on my gear demos. Um, but just kind of a little more refined and whatnot and written out, but that's still on the back burner. I need to arrange a, you know, get musicians for that and recording session and do it, do it right. So, right. If you're going to do it, you want to do it right. Yeah. But I was also considering putting on a blues album and even like a straight up Delta blues like record with just acoustic and resonator and stuff. But, you know, I have all these ideas in my head, but they, I, I'm always, <laughs> I'm a, uh, famous procrastinator <laughs> well well you're in the right club because uh i i mean what was the old phrase there used to be a phrase um i'll never remember it now because i actually need it so um <laughs> but that that's actually a, probably another hallmark of procrastination yeah I'm, I'm a i'm a bad procrastinator it's actually why um uh, my regular listeners will know that i don't do a lot of research for these podcasts i don't do <laughs> I don't do a lot of, I, I mean, I do a little bit, so I know who I'm talking to and, but you know, I've, I've been familiar with your channel and watching it long enough that I sort of feel like I have a little bit of a handle on you. And so I didn't have to do as much, but I don't pre-write questions. I don't pre-write any, it's like, we're just going to have a conversation. We're going to see where it goes. And that's mostly because I'm a procrastinator and I wouldn't, <laughs> I know I don't have that level of planning in me. Hey, well, we're on the same page then. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's, it's sort of like all the stuff I've done. The, the bands that I've put together, are they've never been original stuff. That's always just been blues cover gigs and stuff like that. And I, I love doing those, and I do them very much my own way, mostly because I, I've been an improver my entire life. And, you know, I'll learn the signature riffs and roughly the lyrics, and then it'll be what it becomes. We, we don't yeah. rehearse, we just play. And that's what I loved about the blues culture. It's very much a, hey, guys, we're going to do this song. It's a shuffle. Um... 16 instead of 12, no quick change, and watch me for the stops. And we're yeah. going to go. And that's all you need to know. And that's it. That's all you need to know. It's really, it's it's a great culture to be in. Um, But an instrument, it seems like instrumental records are sort of, I, I'm seeing, in, uh, there's always ebbs and flows, but I'm seeing like a, a growth in them a little bit. Like, you know, Tom Bukovac put something out last year um, that's incredible if nobody's gone and, and listened to it and, and bought it, give him a little bit of money. Um, cause, uh, that's a fantastic, um, record if you want to hate your own guitar playing. Um, the thing about that record that people need to understand is it's like, and there's no shredding really in it. Mm -mm. It's all mel It's pure melody. And it's which so is, tasteful. And you don't get that a lot. I don't think I've ever heard a guitar instrumental record that got, got my intention, my attention with just pure like really good melodies yeah like and i can't even tell like if what was written as a melody and what was his improv because it, it, they're on the same level you know yeah he's he's a ridiculous player of another caliber that um may be the best i, I hesitate to say anything's the best part of the pandemic there's not a best part but <laughs> one of the not so terrible parts is my discovery of tom bukovac and and hearing yeah. him play and just i need to sit down at some point and just start watching his videos as lessons and just learning to play the things he's playing because it is an absolute 
masterclass in phrasing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. So, uh, lots of gear, you see lots of gear come through. Um, I, I noticed, and I had a, a patron, uh, I'm going to shout at David cause he, I have some patron questions for you. Cause I asked my Patreon supporters, um, said I was going to have you on the podcast. So I wanted to have them ask a couple of questions. Um, and one of them said, uh, David said, appreciated your eighties sound breakdown where you recreated the eighties LA session guitarist direct AOR sound. So yes, this is where you're an anomaly too, is that you're, you're steeped in the blues, but also like this eighties rock thing is the thing that you come to very natively. So how did, how did that come about? So I do go through phases of what stuff I'm into. So sometimes you'll see like a bunch of videos. You probably, you know, there was probably a period last year or two years ago where I was just doing videos on 80s stuff, (laughs) Floyd Rose guitars and all that stuff. So, you know, I go through phases, but musically, yeah, absolutely. 80s, hard rock, metal, hair bands, whatever, um, was a big part of my, my youth. You know, I grew up, I'm a child of the 80s, a teen of the 90s, and those decades for music were some of the best um so i have to go back and revisit stuff that i didn't like as a kid you know um i saw the deaf leopard hysteria tour but that's because my sister dragged me to it i wasn't into (laughs) deaf leopard back then um because of the you know the poppiness of the guitar tones and the production right. of that record and everything so i mean later on in in high school and, and college i i learned to love that but um you know it's something that i've been doing a lot of is is revisiting stuff from my, from the past that might have gone over my head uh, at the time Um, And just rediscovering, you know, the little idiosyncrasies of, you know, a particular piece of gear or, or, or style of of music or something like AOR music. I, I never really knew there was a a term for what people are calling AOR, this melodic rock, hard rock, really, you know, poppy stuff. And so I'm like, you know, going on a deep dive into on YouTube and Spotify, like trying to like figure out what are AOR or in our bands and like um come to find out there's like a huge resurgence in um europe like sweden and italy of these new aor bands that sound like they could have come out in like 1990 or 1989 of just like you know unapologetic power metal pop records it's weird that is and they sound killer it's weird how music does that cyclically, though. It's like something, it, it always comes back in some form or fashion or another, and you see it. Um, I have that similar issue with styles of music that completely passed me by, maybe because I was so steeped in, like, um, I don't know, I was listening to nothing but, like, outlaw country, red dirt, and blues music, and that was, like, all I really absorbed. And then I've been on this... Uh, I was telling my listeners earlier this year on an episode that I made a New Year's resolution this year that I'd made before and then not done, and I'm actually behind a couple of days on it this year. But I I want to deep dive into music that I should have listened to or I should be familiar with, 
And I chose for the first month to stay in comfortable territory and I stayed in blues, but I wanted to specifically target those blues artists that everyone talks about. And I pretend like I'm familiar with their music, but I'm not Mm -hmm. really familiar with their music. And so like, like, uh, like blind lemon Jefferson is one of the biggest discoveries for me. It's like, I did not realize how much I love blind lemon Jefferson's music. I had, I've heard other artists do it, but I had never heard him do it. Or um, Bessie Smith. I've always talked about Bessie Smith because uh, Empress of the Blue. She actually died in Clarksdale. There's a whole long story there. You can you can actually travel to Clarksdale, Mississippi, and sleep in the room she died in if you're really crazy. Because it used to be uh, a hospital for African Americans during that time period, but is now a hotel uh, that you oh, can wow. rent and stay in. It's it's it, because it it be, was a hospital, and in still in that era, it converted to a hotel, and that's where. Like Ike Turner would stay when he was on tour. Uh, Ike Turner's also from Clarksdale, but you know that's where he would stay, or where other blues musicians of the day, as they came through Clarksdale, that's where they'd stay. And so mm-hmm. it's a it's a hotel that's like it's got tons of history. It's got so much vibe and so much energy. But I talk about Bessie Smith because I I love the history of Clarksdale, but I had never really done a deep dive on her music. Sure. So I've been listening to an album a day. That's great. Um, yeah, it's it, it. Sometimes it's a little tough to get through, especially if you choose one of those like the essential collections where they're like two and a half hours of music, and you're like, I don't know that I have that much spare time today. Um, yeah, there's um, there's a I forget what record label it was, but they um, you know, it's on all the streaming platforms, but they would release like a ton of old um, Delta Blues recordings and stuff. The like the covers are all just kind of like black and white or whatever, but yeah, I mean, I kind of went through that same thing where like there's so many artists from you know the Delta Blues genre or the time period that I had never even heard of. Yeah, um, that I discovered like who is this? You know, it's some guy playing with Tampa Red or something. I'm like, I've never heard of this person, right? Man. Or like Harpo Slim. Like I've played Harpo Slim. Uh, uh no, sorry, Slim Harpo own brain moment some harpo tunes i've played a ton of them because i've played in a lot with a lot of guys who played those tunes but i never listened to slim harpo myself i I was going on what they told me to play like that that was my upbringing and learning to play blues was literally uh oh you play guitar we got a gig tomorrow night come show up Mm -hmm. at this time and i show up and they'll name tunes i've never heard and they're like oh it goes sort of like this so i've right i've got uh i've got this like whole songbook of a couple hundred tunes that I've probably played dozens of times each and never heard the original recording just because I've always just played them with these guys or or women who called it out. But like next month, my goal next month, I completely, this is, this is so disheartening to say, I completely missed the grunge era. Like I completely missed it. Um, I heard the stuff that was on the radio by Nirvana and that Mm -hmm. was about it. And what year were you born? I was born in 1980. Okay. So, so I was young. I was youngish at that time. Um, where I think we're similar in age. I think we're pretty close. Um, but I missed that and I missed Power Pop. Or mm-hmm. uh, Yeah, I missed all that. So I'm going to next month, that's going to be my deep dive on those two genres. Like, So what month. were you listening to in instead of grunge at the time? So in the early so, 90s? So early were 90s, I was probably listening to, I'm trying to think uh, when some of the... Like I was a big like Wallflowers fan. I loved. I actually 
you know, this is a little later in the 90s, but I really liked Matchbox 20 and mm-hmm. uh, uh, Marcy Playground. And I cannot believe I just remembered the name of that band. Um, <laughs> but but that kind of stuff. And beyond that, I was listening to early 90s and 70s country. I list, I missed all the 80s stuff, apparently. But 70s wow. and 90s country, I was really into. Um, so I was listening to that stuff and whatever, you know, and lots of... Uh, uh, Stevie Wonder, because my mom really loves Stevie Wonder, and um, Patsy Cline and Ray Charles, and she'd play that stuff in the car, and like I'd hear that that combination of like that old country and that like it seventies eighties uh, yeah. soul R and B funk stuff. And uh, so yeah, I was listening to that. I never got into Nirvana. It was like it didn't make sense to me. I you know I'm living in the Mississippi Delta, and everybody's talking sure. about Nirvana, and all my friends are really into Nirvana, and. Uh, Pearl Jam and all this other stuff, and I was like, I don't get it. It's not my thing. Uh, I can't understand. It's a timing what he says. thing. It, it really is a timing thing and an age thing. Because I think so. I'm a couple years older. I was already in high school when those bands came out. So you might have been already, you know, in in middle school or whatever. So right. it might have not been on your radar because, like, oh, the, you know, Nirvana's for the older high school kids, you know, because they smoke and and do weird things (laughs) or whatever they're rough so it's it's probably you know not generational but it's it's you know it's all timing with the age age thing and stuff like um that's probably one of the reasons why i grew up in such a like in love with guitar was i started playing in the mid 80s and so from the mid 80s on through the 90s all this guitar music was coming out so it was very, you know, compared to today, it's totally different. You know, there's not, you know, there's no radio, there's no MTV really today. Right. So a lot of kids are digesting what they see on TikTok and YouTube and Instagram. Like that's who their heroes are. Their guitar heroes are, are people on Instagram and TikTok. So it's totally different. But um, it's, you know, it's just a different form of media, I guess. Yeah. That, you know, getting into. I actually have a conversation around that that'll be a fun one. But I also thought of another genre that I was really into at the time, and that's gangster rap. So, like, <laughs> Dr. Dre's Chronic came out about that time. Yeah. And I got really, really into Snoop Dogg and Dr. Dre. And Nate Dogg was actually from Clarksdale as well. And, like, I, I knew him I didn't and know his, that. his family. And uh, so I got, you know, into that for a, a time there. So, you know, grunge completely went right by me. So, next. I next think one. when, yeah, I mean, even. It's funny because, like, when th- those albums, when, like, The Chronic came out and those records came out and Snoop Dogg, you know, even though we were listening to grunge, we were still, you know, that was on MTV just right. as much. So we were, you know, we were all buying that stuff, too. <laughs> so there was an article that came out, and I think I think both Rhett and Rick Beato have done a video on it, and it popped up on TikTok. I I'm I'm still building YouTube. It's it's a it's a different animal for me. I started this podcast never thinking I would do YouTube, and so I've been like embracing YouTube since I started doing it. Especially since I changed platforms and I use this for video. I'm like I've got the video, I may as well put it up. Um, but I've been really on TikTok lately, and a guy shared the article from the Atlantic that said that 70s, 80s, and 90s music is outperforming music since 2000 by a uh, 70%. It's like 70% of the music listened to today is from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And I'm sure that metric is from Spotify or Apple Music or 
I didn't read the whole where he got his statistics from. But he, he shared it. He tried to, the guy who originally shared it, tried to make an argument that it was about a quality of music. And I have this theory um, that it's not the quality of the music that's gone down. I actually don't think the quality of music has gone down. I think the quantity of music has gone up, like astronomically. And we yeah. don't buy physical media anymore. And so we don't have that connection to the music that we used to. You know, you went to the store. You had to go find that CD. Sometimes you had to go to multiple stores to find it. Um, You recorded it off the radio onto a cassette tape. You waited for the DJ to play it, and you recorded it so you could have that music. And we developed these connections with artists and music that we don't today. It's disposable music. I can just pull it up on Spotify because it's there listen to it and then never cycle back to that artist again never think about that artist again because it's it was there i didn't have to go search for it i didn't have to put money out for it um i think that that is actually influencing i think there's a nostalgia for those things we had a connection to and we're that's why we're seeing people go back to these 70s 80s and 90s bands because what happened in 2000 the proliferation of the mp3 you know napster and and uh uh, LimeWire and all those other things where you know we'd spend two and a half hours downloading three tracks um, what do you think yeah, you think there's something there you think maybe music is not quite what it was well absolutely I didn't read the the article nor did I see yeah. Rick or Red's video sorry guys but um, <laughs> I haven't watched the videos either your point of, uh, of quantity is totally correct I think the music landscape is totally oversaturated but that's also, you know, that's a, a plus and a minus. It's a plus for any art, anybody that wants to make music and put it out there. It's, it's, right. it's easier than ever before to get your music in front of millions of people, you know, possibly millions of people for free and instantly. So there's that. So there's obviously more artists unsigned artists that are out there to discover that you can that are on spotify because anyone can put anything on spotify or you know all the streaming platforms and then um there i do feel that it's a combination of that and what social media is is pushing um down the i don't i don't want to say down the throats but it's like you know you got a guy skateboarding with cranberry juice to a Fleetwood Mac song and all these millennials are I'll be like that's great you, you know it's viral and then they go to discover whatever song that is because it's so popular and everyone's talking about it right. so you know you get you know stuff like that happens um, so they're not I, you know I can't speak for young people but I feel like they're not sitting on Spotify searching for new music it's kind of like being um um designed for them like it's kind of like playlists are designed for them it's kind of being curated by somebody else which you know when we were growing up it was kind of like that it was like what my sister my older sibling was listening to or what my friends were listening to is what i listen to because I don't know you know you, you couldn't really discover music other than you know radio MTV and and your close-knit circle circle so um, and that's what it is today is just like social media is that vehicle that's pushing that for you 
Right. So, um, I mean, and there's obviously kids probably that are discovering, you know, un, unheard stuff, unsigned stuff. But, um, you know, I think we also live in a time where everything has to be instant. So people are not going to have, you know, they don't want to spend the time sitting down and, and just search for cool new music or go to shows or whatever. So there's that element. And I think there's also an element of, of throwback nostalgia now. Like I have my, my niece is 14 and, and she's all about 90s culture. Oh, Grunge. Wow. She loves fr Friends. It's like her favorite show. <laughs> so, you know, and to think about it, like when we were growing up, um, there was sort of like a 60s throwback thing for a time like everyone was getting into like hippie culture and like um, dressing kind of like hippies or whatever um, so I kind of it's kind of like a you know it's a circle or whatever but um, I don't know if anyone in the future is going to be like I want to dress like 2020s or whatever you know I want to yeah. I love 2020 culture I don't think that could ever happen because it's just gotten so you know deteriorated it it'll it'll be them it'll be a filter it what it'll be it whatever social media is being used in 2040 there'll be a mm -hmm. filter to look like 2020 tiktok and, and <laughs> <laughs> that'll be the nostalgia exactly it, it's so be, retro it'll be, yeah it'll be that voiceover that 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 you know the voice that everybody hears when they do the, oh yeah the, that'll be like a ringtone like as a throwback you know the way yeah. like somebody might have the beatles as their ringtone now Exactly. <laughs> I could totally. See that. But the Beatles is another one, you know, um, the Get Back documentary comes out. Huge. And suddenly the Beatles are the number one artist on Spotify all of a sudden. Yeah. You know. Which is, inter you know, I wouldn't have thought that anybody but musicians would be into watching, what is it, nine hours of. It, yeah. It's that. like eight or nine hours of the Beatles arguing and, you know. Uh, yeah. riffing over and writing songs I did not think anyone but like and maybe not even musicians I didn't think anyone but like hardcore Beatles fans would yeah, sit through right. all of that um, and it, it's kind of blown my mind I haven't finished it yet because I'm not a hardcore Beatles fan I like the Beatles mm -hmm. um, I definitely appreciate the music they made but that is it's hard to watch <laughs> it's, yeah it's like not I mean I guess it was edited but yeah. it doesn't seem like it was edited no it doesn't feel enough. edited at all yeah, it's like this. It's Peter, Peter. Seriously, I know you made Lord of the Rings like twelve hours. This does not have to be that. Um, yeah. yeah, I think the beauty of it is that it's not edited so down that like you can actually. It's like you're sitting in the room with them while they're just going through shit. So. Yeah, they're just dealing with it. It it's a wild experience, and it's it's going to be weird to see. It, and the whole the whole live shows thing is like I wonder how much live music is like as we go forward between the pandemic and just the way we consume music has changed so much like i worry that we're gonna see decline in in live music because i already think we're seeing a decline in like what i call the national star like the big mm -hmm. national touring act there's a lot there's a lot of folks touring nationally but i don't feel like there's a lot of big big stars anymore the way there used to be um you know, records don't go platinum anymore the way they used to. Uh, don't even go gold the way they used to. Um, they still don't know how to count streams correctly. I think 17 streams equals one CD sale or something like that for the purposes of going platinum. Um, mm -hmm. It's some ridiculous number. 
so it's I don't know. I, I worry about that going forward. Not not like being all doomsaying and boomerish about it. Oh, well, when I was your age, you know, I'm not going to go that route. But I, I do wonder what the landscape of music is going to look like. And, and part of that is how we consume and find music as well has changed so much. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised, and I, I would hate for this to happen, but I wouldn't be surprised if the whole metaverse thing is, becomes a thing yeah. where people go see concerts through a VR headset um, or, you know, go experience a music festival through a VR thing. That, that would, That's just too weird. I mean, I'm open to it, whatever. Yeah. It might be cool tech-wise, but uh, it's just too weird. It's too different. It is. It is I'm strange. old. <laughs> and, and I've seen Ready Player One. I know what that world looks like. <laughs> you know, yeah. Because obviously that book is prophetic. It's not, yeah. it's not fiction. <laughs> oh, anyway. It's, it's already here. Yeah, it's exactly. So it'll be interesting. Suddenly everyone's really into, well, uh, it'll be a great day for um, uh, makers of headphones. So Sennheiser, Shure, JBL, um, Bose, y'all get ready. That's your day coming right there. Cause, oh, they probably already have it set. <laughs> oh, they're, yeah, they're, <laughs> they're set. just waiting. So I've got a couple of more Patreon questions I want to get through. And then we're going to hop over to the Patreon episode, and that's where we'll deep dive on gear and get real nerdy, because uh, RJ's played a lot of gear, and I'm always interested in the opinions of people who play a lot of gear, because uh, uh, I have questions that need Absolutely. answering. So, um, so Andrew, uh, my most recent Patreon supporter, thank you for your support, I greatly appreciate it, um, asks, um, it says, we need to know how he keeps his hair so stylish. <laughs> this is the first time this is it's not even styled hair but it's funny like um i don't really style my hair that much anymore <laughs> i've gotten tired of it yeah just like the uh, the work or whatever but i don't know i just it's the key is finding a really good barber that's all <laughs> that's all that's it I've got I've got similar. This is long for my hair, and therefore it becomes a huge pain to deal with. I I used to have really long hair, and I really adored my long hair, and I was really vain about it. Actually, I called it my dirty Southern rock look. Um, <laughs> uh, but it was like I took immaculate care of that hair, and then one day, you know, I live in Mississippi. It was in August. I woke up as hot and sweaty. I cut it all off, and I have kept it short since. So this is this is long for me. It's actually due for a cut. So styling hair is overrated cut it so short that you don't have to style it that's the way i look at it yeah that's <laughs> but, coming i might shave my head soon i don't know <laughs> now that's a that's a little extreme i can't do it um uh, this is me sharing too much on the podcast y'all i'm so sorry um <laughs> i've discovered i have a misshapen head and i have a dip in my head where headphones sit i don't know if it just i naturally have a dip there and just have always and that's where headphones tend to sit Mm -hmm. Or if I've worn headphones for so much of my life, whether wow. in studio, listening to music, just whatever, at gaming, because I've been a gamer most of my life too, gaming headsets, if I've developed a dip, and I'm really self-conscious wow. about it, I shouldn't have even mentioned it, but it's, I'll never shave my head for this very reason. So. That's insane. I, yeah. You check the baby pictures and to see if, uh, before you started growing hair, if it's, uh, if it's there. That's a good, that's a good idea. I've got a, I've got a whole... A case full of them out there that I need to go through anyway. So, um, but he also asks on top of that because that was that was his funny question. But um, 
with all of your gear, you've got, and, and you've got plenty. I mean, anyone watching the video right now can see behind you. This, the guitar selection is, is substantial. Um, when you go and deciding what tone you need for a project, a video, a demo, something like that, do you start with deciding what amp to use or what guitar to use? How do I start it? Um, probably at both at the same time. You know, it's, it's, um, do you have, do you have like in your head, like, and it's probably an unconscious decision at this point, but maybe in your head, you have like pairings of amps and guitars already sort of programmed in your head. And you know, like if you grab this guitar, you know, you're more likely to plug into this amp. Kind of, sort of. I mean, I, I feel like all, they all work together pretty good. Like the ones that didn't work together, I, I, I already sold or whatever. Yeah. So I'm kind of set up that way, but I kind of really just use go between two amps and, you know, for things specific like, you know, pedal demos or whatever, um, because it's kind of like, a, you know, I'm being paid to showcase this piece of gear. Uh, it would be beneficial if I demoed the gear with common um guitars and common amp setups so i don't go too too crazy on guitar selections i always try to showcase something with single coils like a strat or a telly and then something with humbuckers because those are just that's kind of the general thing you know i don't really reach for something with filter trons or or you know unique pickups but um you know choosing the amp is kind of similar like I go between a a Friedman Marshall style amp, Mm -hmm. uh, which isn't the cleanest. It cleans up pretty good, but it's, I I wouldn't call it my good clean amp. My good clean amp is like a, is an amplified nation kind of clone of a a steel string, a Dumble, which stays clean no matter what. It's like my favorite clean amp. So depending on the pedal, I might, you know, if this is like a booster and overdrive, it sounds killer in front of a, a dirty amp, then I'll reach for the Friedman. If it's something that I I need a totally clean pedal platform thing, I'll go into the the Amplified Nation steel string. Um, so that's really the only things that dictate which amp I choose. If I want something with a little bit of hair or something that stays totally clean. But um, yeah, that's it. I, I keep it simple. Yeah, real simple, real, real, you know, straightforward. And and I like what you said about common gear. You know, I've I've started to make demos on YouTube, and I'm doing what I call, and I I really like this concept. Actually, I'm I'm more proud of this than I should because it's really not that clever. Um, but I'm doing what I'm calling fun size demos, sort of mm-hmm. like candy bars that are like t- the tiny little taste. And so I'm doing like three to five minute demos, no talking, just playing, twisting knobs, and getting some sounds, and just that's it for those people. That's, that's all they want. They want to hear the pedal. Um, I've done four or five of those, figuring out my workflow, lighting. So, you know, just figuring it all out as I go. But I worry about the fact that, you know, I I have been doing these demos with a Novo and, you know, playing into, um, actually, I use a basically a Princeton for most of the stuff I'm doing. But I, I think about that, too. I'm like, should I really be doing this with a Novo or should I like grab a Telecaster or should I grab, you know, a Les Paul, something everyone's super familiar with what it should sound like, what it, you know, um, it's something to think about. I think if ultimately if it sounds good, no matter what, what, whatever combination of gear you're going through, I think that's the most important. Um, 
I've been doing it for so long that I feel, I just kind of feel like the companies that I work for would want to see it done with like, you know, a Les Paul and a Stratocaster or something just to, because sometimes, you know, you might get a pedal that was specifically voiced for a Strat or something. Right. Like, um, like the King Tone Duelist, most people think, oh, this is like the ultimate Strat pedal. It does the Stevie Ray Vaughan stuff. But the demo that I put up with, I'm playing a dual humbucker nags and it sounds killer. <laughs> so like you, you'll discover like maybe someone didn't realize that you don't have to, it doesn't sound just good with a Strat. It sounds great with other things or whatever. So, you know, just because you're playing it with a Novo, someone might discover like, wh- like what do you have? P90s, P90s in or something? Yeah. yeah. You know, I've got a P90 guitar and maybe it's going to sound similar or whatever. Yeah. No, it makes sense. And, or another good one, just because I gotta say it, it's like if I see one more fuzz face style demo with just a guy <laughs> grabbing a strat to play yeah. it, I'm like, come on, we we all know that sound works. Like, do something yeah. else. Anyway, neither here nor there. Um, last Patreon question. Uh, I did a last call a little bit ago, and this is the last one from Jim. He wonders, uh, what's it like working with a legend like Stevie Wonder? Uh, is it was it intimidating? And I'm going to throw in someone like Santana as well. Those kinds of gigs. It's super intimidating. Do you not have time to be intimidated or anxious about it? What's that? Well, what's that like? Okay, so I need to come clean about the Santana oh. gig. I never met the dude. Oh, really? It was a recording session for one of his albums that was sent to a producer in Miami. I was living in in South Florida at the time, and a guy called in. I was like the the third guitarist he called because like the first call people were out of town or busy or something so i wasn't even supposed to be on the session i was just like a last minute call emergency guy so it was the earliest um tracking of this session i remember going to this uh producer studio and and he had a uh, it was a song called why don't you and i which chad kroger from nickelback wrote um so i heard the demo that Chad had sent to the producer and actually actually sounded great. So I was like, you really need me to, you know, Chad had his <laughs> PRS freaking going through whatever mess of boogie or something. It sounded killer. But, you know, he wanted to retrack all the gu- rhythm guitars, you know, because yeah. basically those albums were people writing songs for Carlos and then he would just solo on them and, and right. put his name on it. Um, but that was actually the first single from that album, which was interesting. I remember but that. But I, I just recorded it you know, I did, I did an acoustic track and I did a couple electric stuff. I didn't have a lot of gear, uh, and then they sent it off to LA, and then that's where like Tim Pierce played on it and Lee Scalar and and those heavy guys played on it. But to my knowledge, I don't even think Santana was at any of those sessions either. So um, that sounds about right. I'm sure I Santana's never met got, the man. I'm sure he's got a killer <laughs> studio in his house where they send him tracks and he just yeah. I mean, why I would, would do the same? Yeah, I would do the same thing too. Yeah, but so I, I you know, I, I put Santana down as a, um, as a credit album oh, credit. Oh, it's but I never played with them or anything. But um, the Stevie Wonder thing was a, a TV show that we filmed. I was living in LA. It was very short lived. <laughs> Brian McKnight talk show. I think it was we only did like two episodes and then oh, they wow. got canned. But his first. Um, episode was stevie wonder was like the highlighted guest and i was so excited um to learn these songs 
what did we play? Do I do and um my Sharia Amour. And um you know, he came it was all one day. We just uh, I think the band itself rehearsed like one day in a rehearsal space and then at the show Stevie came in and, and we just did a run through, quick quick camera blocking and all that stuff and then we, we filmed it. But you know, in between takes or whatever, Stevie we'd be sitting at the uh, piano and we were all in in your monitors and he'd be noodling around and, and singing melodies into the mic and no one could really hear it except the guys on stage because we had our in-ears in so like i would hear him playing what was he playing he was playing he was just like kind of soloing like a jazz pianist soloing and i i i realized he was he was playing giant steps john coltrane <laughs> which is like a ridiculous modal jazz tune and here's Stevie was like basically reharmonizing re it, but also playing on top of it. I'm like, I didn't know he could play like that before. And I think he might have actually actually been singing a melody over it while he was doing it too. And I'm like, is he playing giant steps? And you know, it was insane. Of course, what I was a nervous. Wild tuned and noodle. Just <laughs> it's like it's probably like this is a tune I just learned. Uh, Oh, that's, that's, that's absolutely bonkers. Like, cause I have, you know, I, I, you don't know, my listeners know I, my undergrad was in music and I played in the jazz band and did a bunch of, you know, cause there's, I went to a very small school that didn't really know what to do with a guitarist. Right. You know? Yeah. And so, um, played in jazz band, did some, some small stuff. And like anytime anyone ever tried to throw any of those tunes, like no, no one in that school was going to throw giant steps at me. Right. And it's like, <laughs> no one, we're not doing giant steps. That, that song is still a complete and utter, just, I, I, you know what? Just send me to the desert with nothing but the clothes on my back, one canteen of water and tell me to walk to the nearest city. That sounds easier than trying to master giant steps. I just don't feel like there's a chance. It's so there's probably in my in my college career there was probably a couple of weeks where I had that song dialed in, and then it just went to <laughs> shit. Like I forgot. I, if you asked me to play it right now, I would totally hit clams and and not know where I am in the in the. Oh yeah, I'd have parts. I'd have no clue. I have no clue. Um. Well, that covers this four hour regular episode. Uh, listeners, thank you for hanging out. Thank you for um. Uh, listening and in, uh, hopefully enjoying this conversation. RJ, thank you so much for coming and being on the show. Uh, listeners, remember to wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whatever device platform you're listening on, rate, review, like, subscribe, bell icon, follow. There's, uh, I don't know, there's other words for social media that I don't know. <laughs> Do all of the things. Uh, if you like the show, remember to go over to Patreon if you want to support the show for as little as $3 a month, $5 a month. We have a bunch of tiers, get extra episodes. I give 25% of the proceeds of my Patreon to charity. Uh, I give it to St. Jude Children's Hospital. Um, able to give a great donation in December. Hopefully, this coming December, I'll be able to give another great one. You can be a part of that. Uh, Anyway, so we're going to move over to the Patreon episode because I have I have Les Paul questions and uh, we're <laughs> going to talk Les Pauls and uh, and other gear related things. So regular listeners, uh, hope you have a wonderful, wonderful day wherever it is you are. Um, be good to yourselves, be kind to each other and try to make some noise.
This episode is brought to you by the supporters of 40 Watt Podcast over on Patreon. Go over to patreon.com slash 40 Watt Podcast, where for as little as $3 per month, you can help support the podcast and get every episode ad-free. For $5 a month, you'll get every episode ad-free, as well as a bonus episode every week. I can't overstate how thankful I am for the support of my patrons, and hope you'll consider joining the team and helping keep this show on the road. 